Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you are listening to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I am with Craig A. Hefner to talk about his new book, Kierkegaard and the Changelessness of God, a Modern Defense of Classical Immutability, published by IVP Academic Press, 2023. Danish theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard was not afraid to express his opinions, living amid what he perceived to be a culturally lukewarm Christianity. He was often critical of his contemporary church, but that does not mean Kierkegaard rejected traditional Christian theology. Indeed, at a time when many of his contemporaries were questioning the classical doctrine of God, Kierkegaard swam against the stream by maintaining orthodox Christian beliefs. In this volume of IVP's IVP Academics New Explorations in Theology series, Craig A. Hefner explores Kierkegaard's reading of scripture and his theology to argue not only that the Great Dane was a modern defender of the doctrine of divine immutability or God's changelessness in response to the disintegration of the self, but that his theology can be a surprising resource today. Even as the church continues to be beset by shifting shadows, James 1, 17, Kierkegaard can remind us of the good and perfect gifts that come from an unchanging God. Craig, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today to talk about this wonderful book, Kierkegaard and the Changelessness of God. Yeah, thank you, Jackson. Glad to be here. Great. Well, before we get into the content of the book, I'd like to know a little bit about your um, academic background and the scholarly impetus for writing this book. Hmm. Sure. Uh, So scholarly background. I did the, this project was mostly written while I was at Wheaton College. So I went to Wheaton College um, graduate school for my PhD, uh, studied with um, uh, my my supervisor there was uh, Dan Trier, who wrote the forward to the book. So you can read his introduction to this topic. So I worked, I worked under him at, at Wheaton. And so uh, before that, I was at seminary at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the Chicago area as well, <clears throat> which is actually where I discovered um, my interest for Kierkegaard. So it was in a modern theology class uh, that I was taking there. And uh, in the context of kind of studying modern theology, encounter Kierkegaard. And I didn't know exactly why I was so drawn to Kierkegaard, but I read him and thought, I think there's something really important that he's saying. And I think there's something useful in terms of trying to do Christian theology that I want to figure out. And so I just kind of started down this path of learning more about him. Um, and then I got the opportunity to really excel that um, path while I went to Wheaton and spent a good bit of time reading Kierkegaard and figuring out what I thought he had to say for us. Great. Well, going into your text, let's elaborate some terms of the argument because you use terms in kind of a specific way. And I think it's important to, to get a grasp of that before continuing. Tell us what you mean by, you know, the the, the, the subtitle of your book is a a modern defense of classical immutability. So what is characteristically modern theology and what is, you know, classical immutability or classical account of immutability? Right. That's, that's perfect. Cause I mean, I think if you get that, that's the, that's essentially the play. That's the argument of the book. So you're, you're on the right path here. (laughs) Uh, So 
each each one. So classical immutability first. So it's a, it's a modern defense of classical immutability. I'll say generally, that was what attracted me to Kierkegaard ultimately into this project was here is a, a modern figure, all, you know, relatively speaking, he's in the 19th century. He's he's after much of what we think of as distinctly modern philosophy and thought and very aware of all of it. And so here's a modern thinker who, when he talks about divine immutability, sounds very classical, which is surprising. And that surprise is what animated the project, right? So why does this, why does this guy think this? This is uncharacteristic for the time period. Um, what, why is he going out of his way to affirm it? Um, that's basically, and the, the play on that, the, the, the surprise that a modern figure like Kierkegaard affirms mutability is what made the project, I think, come to life. And so to, to define the terms there, <clears throat> um, the classical immutability account um, I, I define as, as really that the, the standard doctrine of immutability as it was affirmed from essentially the patristic era up till around Kierkegaard's time would have been something like God does not change in any way. And, and that can get defined out in lots of different ways. Um, uh, theologians would speak of he doesn't change in terms of his essence, in terms of his knowledge, in terms of his you know relationship to time, in terms of his will. So in any sense that you can come up with, it, that God doesn't change with respect to that thing. Um, so it's a rather philosophical doctrine. It's kind of bundled along with things like eternity, divine, divine simplicity even. It's, it's bundled with all those kind of classical theist doctrines, right? And really they all kind of rise and fall together because if you change one, you change all of them usually. Um, and, so, and so that's classical immutability. A modern uh, defense is the subtitle, as you pointed out, um, uh, characteristics of modern theology would be things like kind of suspicious about metaphysics, uh, which is a major section of the book, um, suspicious about natural theology kind of arguments, not necessarily against all of them, but just like more worried, we might say, would be a feature of modern theology. And another one that's probably the biggest for the book is the um, the concern for the self and anthropology kind of questions. And so... Um, Modern theology is, I guess, exceptionally interested in things like um, what a human being is, uh, questions like identity, um, and and things like that. So modern theology tends to focus on those types types of topics, right, um, and and less of the traditional ones. Is that uh... so? In in your book, um, you mentioned the author whose name is uh, the author whose name escapes me of theology without metaphysics. Kevin Hector. Kevin yeah. Hector, who writes that modern theology is defined by a sense of mindness. Uh, what, is, what does that mean about that about mindness in terms of modern theology? Kevin Hector actually has two books, and so it's, it's, it's both of his books. So he has one called Theology uh, Without Metaphysics, and that's where he basically is outlining this kind of way of doing theology uh, without certain kind of metaphysics. So he, he's expressing that one pillar of modern theology, which is some – some allergy or resistance to metaphysical theology. And then his other, one of his other books is, is um, uh, it, it, the whole title is something like the theological project of, of, of modernity modernism. of modernism. And then the subtitle is about mindness, M I N E, right? Uh, like mind, like possessive to me. Um, so he defines mindness as um, an experience, a couple things, uh, uh, as I recall. So one is the experience that your life hangs together in a meaningful way, uh, that your life can have a story that makes sense. 
uh, and that your identity can be coherent across time and change. And so a sense of, uh, of coherence of one's life. And then the other aspect would be one that you can intend as your own, you know, one that you intentionally um, decide for yourself and make your own, right? As, as opposed to say, I really just make decisions that have been given to me through my genetics or through um, predeterminism all the way down. So instead, I'm actually intending this life and it's mine and it coheres in a meaningful way. That's what um, that's what he defines as mindness. And I think he shows pretty convincingly that that's those questions around that are just things that most modern theologians are constantly thinking about um, in, or, or reacting to in some way. Right. And so he traces out a whole number of modern thinkers and shows how something like mindness is just very important to them. Now, Kierkegaard is not among his list, but when you go to Kierkegaard, you see the same things, right? He's talking about the self and uh, coherence and, you know, authenticity and does my life matter and does it hold together? And so the same types of questions Kierkegaard has. You, you mentioned that this project, which is part of New Explorations and Theology series, which is very much focused on this notion of theological retrieval, Mm-hmm. Right on, on utilizing the argumentation and also kind of argumentative method of prior theological sources for contemporary ends. It seems that most theological retrieval is patristic. It mm-hmm. seems that most evangelical. It, would it be wrong to consider your academic background evangelical Trinity and, and Wheaton? Yeah, right. That's right. right. But and so and so Kierkegaard, someone who's early modern and someone who, as in the back, is kind of maybe wrongly, but nonetheless, pejoratively defined as not within that mold. How does Kierkegaard help a project of theological retrieval, considering both his kind of existentialist um, description and his um, contemporary and his rather early modern recent existence himself? I love it. That's a good question. That's something I thought about a lot when I started to frame this project up was that I thought the mode of retrieval made sense for the project because it was retrieving a historic figure for a current debate. But the odd thing about Kierkegaard is that he's not historic enough traditionally, right? So you're right. It's traditionally patristic uh, thinkers that are put, you know, in, in service of something like retrieval. Uh, and so that, that get, I addressed that for quite a while in the first chapter to sort of justify why might one retrieve or think about a retrieval theology of a modern figure. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One is I think it's just consistent with the general method of retrieval theology because the, the, the major claim that, that underlies retrieval theology is something like there is not a particular historical moment that where everything is before is bad and everything after is good. Mm -hmm. So in other words, we can go to patristic sources and they speak now because it's not as if the enlightenment so changed everything that they can't speak to our current situation. So they, the retrieval thinkers tend to see more continuity, right? That, that someone like Augustine can speak to today. And, um, and, and if you carry that logic forward enough, it's like, well, then, there's no reason to view everything as being after the 19th century as an, as, as, as like, as if there's this fall where everything's a problem now, it's like, we, we ought to have a sort of open flexibility to the, the sources of retrieval, but the, other, the, the unique, and then I think it makes possible unique kinds of arguments. And so I think what I try to show there in that first chapter is 
uh, I think the language I used was, it makes possible an argument from within modernity as opposed from kind of without. So it's more sensitive to the internal tensions and problems and uh, assumptions that modernity makes. And so that's how you get this idea of Kierkegaard's kind of from inside modernity and modern ways of thinking, making a classical oriented argument. And that's a different kind of retrieval um, that he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and it, you know, it just opens up a different kind of argument um, that, you know, you wouldn't get with, say, Augustine. Augustine would be a, a classical defense of a classical immutability. So, but Kierkegaard allows you to do a modern defense of classical immutability. It's a different kind of retrieval um, feel. Yeah. Does that, does that answer your question? That does. And it also segues into the, the broader argument of your book. Um, you, you discuss in the, the second chapter after the introduction mm-hmm. about the, the kind of the base problem that instigates this study or at least instigates Kierkegaard's own reflection on this is the problem of change. Yeah. How does change to use the, the terminology of your book disintegrate the self? What are the elements of the self that cannot withstand change? So the three that I t- t- really focus on, but you could, you could articulate this in a whole lot of ways. And I mm-hmm. think Kierkegaard articulates it in a lot of ways. And so I just felt like I had to, I had to scope it down to some set of particularly important aspects, but I don't think it's limited. I mean, Kierkegaard is happy to point out the problem of change generally. Um, and so we, you could talk about it just like that for a long time, but uh, the the three that I really zoom in on are uh, the self's narrative, the self's teleology, and the self's intention. Um, I'll just say something about the narrative one because, in a lot of ways, like I was saying, they are variations on the theme. If of the self always is is up against this problem of change, and you can just articulate it in different ways. But narrative, for instance, what you, you'll see something like this argument over and over in Kierkegaard is that he's there's an understanding that your life is a kind of story. It's a narrative. Your identity occurs over time and and, in some ways through change. And that in, in so doing your life ends up finding something that it makes essential to that narrative. And it just, it, you could discuss different stories and, and characters that he makes up. They have different things that their life is, is fixated on. Right. Uh, famously for him, fear and trembling, you you would have Isaac is that for Abraham, right? His whole narrative is about Isaac. Um, but in more practical ways, it might be, oh, my whole narrative is that I want to be an assistant professor of theology or whatever, right? Uh, you're, if your your whole life story only makes sense if this happens, um, that's, that, that's what a narrative life means. And I, I think he shows really well how any narrative life story does depend on something being true in order for the story to hold together. And so, but the problem of change is going to be that whatever that thing is, it's always vulnerable to change. It can always be taken away um, or not turn out to be true. And so what you end up with is this sense of fragmented narratives, right? Your life makes sense in these little mini windows, but then over time you just have a bunch of different narratives and nothing holds together in a single way. So, you know, again, you could unpack that and then for, for a long time, but the point of the book is to draw out the really, I think, rather clear and helpful ways that Kierkegaard points out how change makes the self's 
understanding of itself really hard. <laughs> so the self becomes disintegrated through change, through its loss of narrative, its lack of goals, its inability yeah. to intend toward those goals. Yeah. How does a changeless God, right, reintegrate the self? This is, this is the kind of the, that, that the, the self, that, that change pervades. We can't base our you know, narrative and teleology on the change, but, but how does a changeless, changeless God make all of these, you know, uh, 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 issues of the self yeah. resolved? That's great. So the, the really specific answer that I unpack is I think that Kierkegaard looks to the theological virtues a lot to do this work. So faith, hope, and love are the are three ways of existing for Kierkegaard that um, reintegrate. And the reason they reintegrate is because these are ways of living uh, in that, that involve a relation to the changeless God. Um, and so what you end up with then is by means of, and again, Abraham and Isaac is that story that he likes to turn to so often. And so when Abraham is his narrative, if his narrative depended on Isaac for his identity, then when God asks him to sacrifice Isaac, the whole narrative is at, is at risk of falling apart. But then what happens is that Abraham has faith. And in doing so, Kierkegaard said he receives Isaac back almost like as if for the first time. Um, but now he really can relate to him properly. And so what Kierkegaard is saying, I think, is that the act of faith is one where you fully throw your narrative onto trust in God's promises and on God himself. And then as a result, you can receive back um, your life among finite changing things as what they were meant to be, which is a gift and as always providentially ordered by God. And then you can live in those things in a healthy and non-identity um, like constituting way. Um, and so then he, that's how Abraham receives Isaac back. So faith is this moment where you recognize that you cannot hold your life together and you fully throw it over to this changeless God. Um, and then you kind of receive back stability, coherence and the like. So um, that's a bit, again, we could unpack that a lot longer, but that's the short well, answer. Just, 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 just discuss the uh, the other two, uh, uh, love and hope. How how that relates to the because it, you have this wonderful kind of inverse triad where the faith, the hope, and the love fulfill the disintegration of the uh, uh, narrative, narrative, the teleology, and the intention. That's right. Yeah, because because faith is is very much like the. Uh, solve some of the narrative problems, I think, for Kierkegaard. And hope being something where you're expecting and looking forward, right? The, uh, um, the act of hope is anticipating with certainty what will, what will come. And so that's a kind of teleology, right? It's a goal that you're expecting and relating yourself to. And then love is, is you know, the will. It's the intention. It's the actions and choices. And so um, in that way, love ends up being this this act or intention that the self can make that, that can be repeated over time, but because it's grounded in love for God first, it ends up being stable. And so, um, real, so very quickly, like what hope does is that it, it gives the self an unchanging expectation, um, an expectation of, uh, that, that, that unlike other, um, 
this worldly expectations actually can be um, certain. And the uh, what love does, and for Kierkegaard is that it um, it's a it's an intention, it's a it's an act that the self does that makes sense of the subsequent actions and decisions that a self might make. Um, if love for God is the one that is governing all of them, then Kierkegaard thinks that as a result, the subsequent intentions have, have make sense and they become stable. And this has really like pastoral practical implications. So he will say like, you really can't love the neighbor uh, unless you have love of God first, because the love for the neighbor is grounded in something that might change about them. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, your love for so-and-so has something to do with this particular thing about them, but then that thing changes your love for them changes with it uh, or goes away or, or even goes deeper because they became more lovable. And he doesn't think that that's a good way. You know, that's not a stable way of loving. Uh, But if you're, if love of God is the thing that is the primary intention of the self, then all of a sudden these subsequent intentions can be uh, meaningfully held together and, and, and be stable because you're, you're not grounding them in changeable things again. So that's again really a quick a quick take on it. But that's that's how some of those things end up. Um, uh, that's how some of like God's changelessness ends up being given to the human self on Kierkegaard's account. I like how you mentioned the, the pastoral qualities. I found your book, um, Craig, even if not intended to have great devotional potential. Right, like like the the arguments therein are are deep. I think deeply informative to people's own spiritual life, independent of kind of an academic understanding of theology, because it's it's so much about one's own life's orientation to the proper things and to the into the gifts that God provides. Now, speaking of gifts, your fourth chapter is a kind of interdisciplinary exercise. I was surprised by, but enjoyed because I come from a biblical studies background. Um, you mentioned that Kierkegaard's basic, you know, what what kind of contemporary evangelicals would call a life verse, right? That Kierkegaard's life verse was James one seventeen, and uh, th- this is also a a proof text for classical systematicians in locating divine immutability. How does a Kierkegaardian interpretation, right? Not necessarily Kierkegaard's interpretation, but what you call it. Your guardian reading of this verse provide biblical warrant for a classical definition of an account of immutability. Oh, that's good. I'm grateful for your question, Jackson. It's so obvious that you actually, you know, engage this book really carefully because these are all the right, all the right questions. So thank you. I always do, Craig. I always do. I mean, it's a, I, I know it's a hard, it's a hard book to read, but I'm, I, I can tell that you've, uh, you know, you've thought about it. So I'm grateful. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm glad you pointed this one out too. So the, um, uh, it is an interdisciplinary chapter, which is kind of a, a feature of having it, having uh, done this work at Wheaton College where I had, where I had began the research, which is a, a intentionally very interdisciplinary program. And, um, and so in some ways it was a requirement of that program, but I became really grateful for it over time because my, my own tendencies as just doing retrieval theology, you would tend to maybe forget the Bible and just keep doing the figure that you're researching. And I was always challenged by my colleagues and my supervisor at Wheaton to 
make sure that it was more than just what does Kierkegaard say, but does Kierkegaard actually help us read the Bible better? You know, and uh, I was glad for that pressure because it it forced me to think, where is he getting his ideas from? And I think in some ways, because of the pressure that the the environment that I was doing the research in, it it raised questions that don't tend to get raised in Kierkegaard scholarship. Um, And so in Kierkegaard scholarship, it's pretty rare to even read him much less as a theologian to mention as like a Bible reader. Um, and, but if you do, and you actually start to ask like, where is he getting these ideas from? Um, the biblical texts are doing a lot of work in his, in his writings, I think. I mean, in a lot of cases, his, his discourses are like sermons on a particular text. And so the Bible is really important for Kierkegaard. Like he thinks it's authoritative and he's, he's in a lot of ways, if you think about what's he grounding his argument in ultimately it's the Bible. It's not just, um, hey, this kind of works like, you know, you need a changeless God to have a stable self because you could just deny that and say, well, there is no stable self and go that way. But he doesn't because James 117 tells him that God doesn't change and that's why you have a stable self. So I know it's a long preface to your thing, but the, 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 I think one of the important things about that chapter is to say Kierkegaard was a Bible reader. He believed in the Bible and he grounds a lot of his arguments in the Bible. And I think it's important to pay attention to when he does that. And so James 117 is that favorite biblical text of his, which tells us something about his theology and about his philosophy, which is he was really interested in questions of change. And so it's not surprising that his favorite text ends up being this text that is the classic proof text, like you said, for divine immutability there, uh, you know, Every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. Well, if you are a kind of existentialist worried about change, you can see why you might like that text. <laughs> you know, um, what Kierkegaard does in that text, and I, it would it would take too long to unpack that whole chapter, but what typically happens when when um, theologians have have proof texted from that text, they have said something like they'll compare God to the shifting shadows, right? So, uh, uh, so he, God, unlike the, sh- the shadows he, uh, or, or perhaps like them, it depends on how you, how you think the, what he's comparing them to, but is he similar to the um, astronomical things and in, in, in their constancy, or is it contrasted to them as either way, it's saying something like he doesn't change like those things or, um, or he's constant like those things. Uh, either way, what tends to happen then is is the relation to that and the every good and every perfect gift section ends up being something like really it, it modulates the doctrine into something like God's faithful. God always delivers on his promises. He's giving good gifts to us and he's consistent in his behavior and attitude and action and commitment to his promises or something like that, which is true, but it's it moves it away from immutability into more like a constancy and faithfulness. Um, and what happens is immutability and, and you can find this argument in lots of theologians. They would say something like that is what the text is talking about. It's talking about God being faithful and consistent, but we have to ground that in immutability. That's what like metaphysically is behind it. God is unchanging and that's why he is faithful and so that tends to be the way that that text gets read, right? God is faithful. He's always giving gifts. He's constant in it. And behind that is the fact that he's immutable. Well, Kierkegaard helps get rid of that leap between those two by showing us that um, it's actually immutability that James is concerned about. And so 
it's about having a relation to a complete, an unchanging God. That is what is driving some of the concerns of James. And so Kierkegaard helped me see how the problem of change is all over the book of James. He talks about the double-mindedness and, and, you know, the rich man who's unstable in all his ways. And there's, you know, a lot of really like existential change language in James. Um, And when read that way, you can kind of see how those themes are actually think James and James one and and Kierkegaard are, are connecting similar things, which is this problem of um, everything withers away. Life is like a vapor and there's the double minded man and he's unstable in every way. And, compared to the, the, the pure at heart who, um, who have a stability and a coherence. And, and the, the, the center verse for Kierkegaard is this, this claim that God is changeless and that the God who's changeless is giving gifts. And so in doing so, you actually get a relation to the changeless God. So forgive me, that was a long answer, but. No, uh, it, was, it was perfect, Craig. And I, I just want to clarify, you mentioned the book, but I think, this kind of goes back to a scholarly tendency, especially among philosophers, first and foremost, that Kierkegaard is not that religious or that he's not theologian. How does, or, or in Kierkegaard's thought, what is the, that, that, how do I say this? Me, what is the mediating force between the human and the immutable God? In a sense, like how does the immutable God relate to the human? Because I think this relates to Kierkegaard as a, yeah. theologian, Christian reader of scripture. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, he's, he is very clear that the answer is, is the incarnation Yeah. that, that, um, and it makes in another way, like this argument that Kierkegaard puts together makes a strong case for why an incarnation makes a lot of sense and why it had to be this way. So yeah, he's, he's, he says very clearly that, uh, that Christ triumphs over change on our behalf and that he he kind of brings the change the intersection of the changeless God into the changeable world that we are in so there's a kind of uh, bridge between the two now that the unchangeable immutable uh, that God is is not uh, unrelated far away and disconnected from our experience but actually right in the middle you know um, the uh, unchangeable God himself kind of brings changelessness into our world so that we have a point of contact with it. So yeah, he's going to, he totally grounds that in, in um, Christ's incarnation, which has um, uh, precedence. So I I think when I talk about that, I show that Augustine says almost the very same thing. He talks about, um, he talks about in terms of immutability and mutability as well, but like, like God had to make a kind of bridge between our mutable uh, existence and his immutability. And that bridge is the incarnation, you know? And so this intersection of the changelessness and our changeability is right at the center of his, his thought. Exactly. And so your final chapter then discusses going back to our conversation about Hector, uh, uh, you know, talking about immutability without metaphysics. And so far we, we have not, I mean, we've briefly discussed kind of the, the building blocks of how prior systematicians have conceptualized immutability, but you make a rather radical claim that uh, Kierkegaard provides a non-metaphysical way to account for and to define classical immutability. Tell us a little bit about the, the kind of debates that you elaborate in your chapter about metaphysics and non-metaphysics and just exactly what a non-metaphysical classical immutable doctrine looks like, because I think to some, especially some say in the reform tradition or in the patristic 
kind of uh, frame of mind, such a claim would be uh, incomprehensible. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, and it may be a lot of it is definition of terms and, and what and exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What exactly is being said and not being said in there. So uh, I do think he offers a non-metaphysical case for the doctrine, but I kind of hedge away from saying that it's therefore a non-metaphysical doctrine. So uh, because at some level it is a claim about the divine nature and, and the divine being, and it's a claim about it. And so if that's metaphysical, if that's what someone means by metaphysical, then I guess it's still metaphysical, right? It's making claims about divine nature and it's making a claim that divine nature is changeless. Okay. If that counts as metaphysical, then unfortunately for better, or for worse, Kierkegaard is as metaphysical as Thomas Aquinas, I guess. But clearly when you read, like what I'm trying to show is that when you read like Aquinas on immutability and then you read Kierkegaard on immutability, there is definitely a different way of getting to the, conclusion. And I, and I think that one way of describing that, that, that I thought was helpful was at least saying the traditional mode was a metaphysical argument, which is, is one that reasons up, I say from below. And it usually looks around at the created world. And it says that, um, Hey, there has to be a changeless cause because otherwise you get like an infinite regress of change. Uh, it also says like change seems to be an imperfection. And so if we magnify perfection up of God, that he must be uh, changeless. And then it typically also says that uh, the, the, the like negative theology statements, right? So we are in change. So God is unlike us. So we change. God must be not change. So it's, it's an argument by looking at our experience in creation and then trying to reason to God and say, what must be true of God in order to make sense of this? That way of arguing is what I try to call a metaphysical argument. It's one that reasons from the created world. It could just as easily be called like a natural theology argument. Um, and, and I think that's true. I mean, when, when, uh, when I think you read traditional, more classical accounts of immutability, um, it's not the Bible or the incarnation or even like salvation is not involved so much. It's really an argument from what must be kind of philosophically true in order to make sense of, uh, you know, coherence of an argument or of the universe to hold together. So it's a very philosophical argument. But in Kierkegaard, you have the Bible, the incarnation and salvation and all these other things at play. Uh, in in talking about immutability. So that's what I am trying to say is the contrast is that Kierkegaard doesn't argue from what must be true about God to make sense of creation. He's, he argues from kind of a point of salvation and incarnation. So Christ is the immutable one among us and part of uh, the salvation of the self for Kierkegaard is this reintegration that the self experiences through faith, hope, and love. And that is where he starts when he thinks about kind of an argument for immutability. And so I was trying to identify the different starting points. Uh, one is kind of natural theology starting point, And the other is a very like um, it's starting with themes like salvation of the self and soteriology and, and, and the Bible. I mean, he's starting with James 117 um, and not immediately jumping to the metaphysical argument, but jumping to the salvation kind of implications. And so I try to chart out those two ways. And there's a long tradition on both sides of trying to discuss it in those ways, which is what I try to chart in that chapter and show that Kierkegaard is in some ways 
offering a way that's not kind of stuck in either um, uh, uh, side of that ditch. Yeah, it reminds me so much of, maybe not exactly, but it's redolent of kind of like mid 20th century uh, existential systematic theologies. So like Tillich and uh, John McQuarrie, especially where it's, you know, they're talking about classical doctrinal topics, but they're not approaching them in that same kind of, as you would say, bottom up natural theological way. They're using that kind of that, that existential, personal, soteriological perspective to make sense of these doctrines without necessarily throwing the, well, with the exception of Tillich, without, without throwing them away. So I, I, I thought that was, um, this kind of non-metaphysical account was, was, was fascinating. Like it was, it was, I don't know if you intended this, but it was also kind of a retrieval of a theological method that is very, is like kind of dated, like no one really uses anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Well, and a kind of a modern method in some ways. Yeah. 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 It's, it's exactly. Well, um, Craig, that is it for the uh, questions on the content of the book. I, I thought you you elaborated it exceptionally well. Again, it was a, a, a wonderfully uh, erudite book with, uh, as I said earlier, I think devotional qualities. Um, even if even if again, it, it, there is you do need to kind of um, for someone who isn't familiar with Kierkegaard, you got to kind of gear your loins here in a sense. But but Craig, nonetheless, thank you so much. So before we leave today, I'd like to ask: uh, Do you have any future projects planned, uh, either on Kierkegaard or, or on something else? That's a good question. I, I don't have anything planned right now. So my my daily life is I, I serve as a head of school at a classical Christian school. And so um, so I'm rather busy. I'm in the middle of a capital campaign and running a school. And so my uh, I don't have the kind of scholarship time that a um, professorial type position would, would allow. Uh, but I only so I say all that as a preface to say that um, the, the only thing I would be um, more or less committed to at this point is that I, I've been shaped a lot by my environment over the last five years in this school, and um, it would probably be less academic. So I'm, I'm 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 interested in maybe bringing some of these types of ideas into a more churchly pastoral um, life, and I'm also really interested in classical education. So I'm trying to think about things related to that. Um, a modern uh, defense for classical education, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> play, right? The changelessness of school. No. There we go. <laughs> yeah, you brought it for me. That's the so so I'm not sure. I have kind of a cluster of interests there. Um, working with students has made me very interested in technology um, because I see it as both a blessing and resource that they have, but also one that's causing a pretty serious crisis in a lot of their lives too. And so from like a pretty pastoral side of things, I have uh, interesting questions about what technology is doing to students and how to think about that well and theologically. Um, but I'm not sure yet. Um, I'm not, I'm not committed to any particular path at this point. So, right. Well, Craig, whatever you decide to do, uh, I look forward to it. I thought uh, change Kierkegaard and changeless of God was a great contribution to um I think uh, the the new exploration theology series into kind of contemporary existential theology. So again, thank you so much for joining me today uh, on the podcast. Of course, thank you, Jackson, for hey. engaging the book so thoughtfully and and um, and bringing all these thoughtful questions. I enjoyed it. Of course, thank you. Well, you've been listening to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. We've been discussing Craig A. Hefner's book, Kierkegaard and the Changelessness of God, a modern defense of classical immutability in the New Explorations and Theology series published by IVP Academic 2023. Thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of your day.